Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. Happy Independence Day to you, the 4th of July. I am here with you. Jim is here with you. And we've given the call screener of the day off, so no need for the number. I wanted to spend some time with you. Now, full disclosure, I've got a brisket going. I have timed it. I will move to a best of later in the show. But I was off yesterday, and I, you know, I normally I've got stuff to say for Independence Day for the 4th of July. And I needed to be here to say these things with you. I grew up overseas, as y'all know, and Independence Day is very special to me. We would come home during the summers from Dubai to South Louisiana. And most, not every part of the country, but most parts of the country now, you can buy fireworks. When I was a kid, Louisiana was one of the few places where you could buy big fireworks that go real big boom and actually shoot them. In fact, we lived in a part of town where, in a small town, and we live right next door to the police station. And the police, many of them were cousins and whatnot, and they'd come out and shoot fireworks with us. When my wife and I got married, she came to Louisiana for New Year's one year and while we were dating and was shocked that we were shooting fireworks with the police. Uh, convinced we were all going to get arrested, that it was a, a, a trap because she grew up in Georgia, where at the time you could not shoot fireworks. And yet here we were. So I want to meditate on this with you, on, on what today means, because there has been real effort by the left to redefine Independence Day, to make this day pejorative. Nicole Hannah-Jones, a fabulist from the New York Times, wants you to believe that Independence Day, this day, the 4th of July, exists for the preservation of slavery. Her 1619 project was this damnable lie about the United States rewriting the history of the United States such that even major progressive historians cried foul over her interpretation in which she went on to say was narrative building, and it was her truth. It wasn't the truth. And that infuriates me that this has now been packaged and run with by the New York Times and turned into a curriculum, among other things, to try to convince people that the lie is the truth and the truth is the lie. Here is the truth. Independence Day came about because the American colonists believed themselves to be Englishmen, British subjects. Their grandfathers were Englishmen, their great-grandfathers in some cases, and they fought in the glorious revolution of 1688 when uh, James II was chased off the throne without a shot being fired, William and Mary came over, and William and Mary submitted to the will of Parliament, not the primacy of God, but the will of Parliament to rule or reign with Parliament. The, The crown was still powerful at the time. The crown had veto rights. Queen Anne, who would come after them, would be the last monarch to veto something without the consent of parliament. Thereafter, it was done uh, with the direction of the prime minister. But even George I, II, and III had powers. It was only George III suffering with mental health issues, uh, a disease that we're not exactly sure what it was, but it affected his mental health. Did he uh, submit more and more powers to William Pitt as prime minister, who became the real power? But still, the crown had powers with William and Mary, but they were forced to sign something called the English Bill of Rights in 1689. 
The forefathers of our forefathers were Englishmen who were willing to fight and die if they need to for the rights of the English Bill of Rights. You would recognize many of the English Bill of Rights, the no quartering of soldiers, the right to keep and bear arms, the freedom of press and speech, the right not to have their home unreasonably searched by the crown, their right not to incriminate themselves. These things reflected in the American Bill of Rights derived from the English Bill of Rights, and our forefathers believed that they were Englishmen and they desired those rights. The American Revolution, the revolution we celebrate today with parades and fireworks and the waving of the American flag is one of the only, if not the only, conservative revolution in the history of the world. I don't mean that to say that they are sympathetic to the conservative ideals, although I think they would recognize them more than the progressive ideals. What I mean to say is when you look at other revolutions, the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution, you name it, these revolutions wanted to throw off the old and build something new. The French called the monarchy the ancient regime. And they wanted something new. They wanted to explore the world and the new ideas of the world, the new philosophies of the world, and to take the new philosophies of the world and weave them into government. The American colonists wanted no such thing. The American colonists believed that they were Englishmen entitled to the Bill of Rights and the Magna Carta that had come before the English Bill of Rights. They believed that they were entitled to them because they were British subjects. They were not just colonists. They were Englishmen. And they rebelled because they believed Parliament was not giving them the rights they thought they were entitled to. There's this wonderful book I had to read in college. It is an academic book, but it's not hard to read. It's called The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. Bernard Balin, a history professor, I think at Princeton or Yale, I think it's Princeton, he wrote this book and he overthrew essentially The historiography of the time, the historiography is the study of history, and the prevailing school of history that looked at the American Revolution came from Harvard and Yale from the 1940s and 50s, and the historians of the time believed it to be a mercantilist revolution, that the upper middle class was being punished by British taxes. They wanted to preserve their trading rights and their revenue stream, and they orchestrated a revolution where only about a third of the colonists really supported it, but they were the ones with the money. They could throw off the British regime, and they could have their cake and eat it too, have trade, have money, have wealth, and that was the prevailing school of thought. After World War II, uh, the rise of progressive academics, they really believed this idea that it was a mercantilist revolution to preserve a mercantilist trading system and taxation scheme. What Bernard Balin did is he came around and he thought, you know what, maybe we should read the writings not of the propagandists, not of the intellectual elite. We should read the writings of the of the foot soldiers. These were a literate people. These were a highly literate, educated people. Men and women wrote correspondence to each other. We should read the correspondence of the infantrymen. We should read the correspondence of the sailors. We should read the correspondence of the middle class and see how they reviewed the revolution. Read the writings and the diaries of the preachers. Read the writings and diaries of the state legislators, but read the writings and the diaries of as much of the poor and middle class of the American colonies as was possible and see how they saw the revolution. And you know what Bernard Balin discovered? Balin discovered that the poor and middle class were divided on the war, but many of them 
began before 1776 to echo the themes reflected in the Declaration of Independence before the founders of the nation, before the men who signed the Declaration of Independence put the Declaration of Independence in public view, the sentiments of the Declaration of Independence were already widely circulated among the poor and the middle class, the men who would fight in the revolution. They, too, believed themselves to be Englishmen. They, too, believed the king was ignoring them. They, too, believed parliament was taxing them without representation, a fundamental right. They, too, believed that their rights as Englishmen under the Magna Carta and the English Bill of Rights were being eroded by a parliament across the sea from them without local representation. And to the extent they had local representation, that local representation was beholden to a crown that increasingly was out of touch with the ways the colonists viewed themselves as Englishmen. And you have to understand a fundamental point here. The American colonists were used to a monarch in charge of everything. But the Englishmen in England were increasingly mindful that Parliament was dominant. So the Americans asked for redress by King George. King George, one, is suffering from mental illness, but two, King George, most of his mental illness came later in life. I should be clear here. But King George was beholden to Parliament and and the parliamentarians and the prime minister and and took their advice. He no longer governed absolutely. He governed and more reigned than ruled over time. And the American colonists separated from that dynamic that was evolving in England. They saw an England with an absolute monarch. They saw an England with a very powerful king. But in England, they didn't actually have that. The American colonists didn't realize it. The American colonists saw a Great Britain, whether it was parliament or king, depriving them of the rights they thought they had, and they weren't even treated as second-class citizens. Worse, they were treated as colonists, not Englishmen. And Bernard Balin, in The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, he pointed out that the the poor and the middle class, the people who fought in the revolution, not the founders, not the signers of the Declaration of Independence, but your average colonist was increasingly of this view, that they were being deprived of things. And so when the revolution came, a lot of the language in the Declaration of Independence was already being voiced by the public at large. It was not, it turns out, a mercantilist revolution. It was an ideological revolution, a revolution of ideas and the core idea was a very conservative idea that these were English men and women entitled to the rights the crown had given up in the English Bill of Rights. And because the crown was not giving to them as colonists who viewed themselves as British, they had the right to rebel, to throw off the old and create something new, not for something new like the French or the Russians, but to give them what they already thought they deserved. It was a mind-blowing revelation. Bernard Balin set the history world on fire with his book, The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, in which he even delves into the issue of slavery and how a lot of the colonies, Vermont being the first, were already throwing slavery off years before the revolution. And that even Thomas Jefferson was writing about, we've got to end this institution We just got to beat the British first, and they kept kicking the can down the road. It completely contradicts at its core the 1619 ideas of the New York Times and Nicole Hannah-Jones and proves what fabulous they actually are. 
the American Revolution was a revolution not to preserve slavery or even a mercantilist empire. It was a revolution of ideas, and the basic idea being these were Englishmen entitled to English rights, and if king and parliament refused to give them the rights they deserved, they would throw off the old and create something new to preserve the old ideals. And that is why July 4th, 1776 happened. Want to be on the show? Hello? Hello? I, I love your show. Call Eric now at 877-973-7425.